Welcome to CSIS. Uh, my name is Sarah Ladislaw. I'm the Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Here, we're very happy to have all of you here today uh, to kick off what is the first in a new series that we're doing on innovation, uh, specifically energy innovation. And we're really pleased to have the opportunity to do this series. We think it's really well-timed. Uh, as I've been telling lots of people, I think, you know, in this town where things can be quite divisive uh, and not always uh, bipartisan like we like to be here at CSIS, energy innovation is one of those areas where there's lots of energy, there's lots of excitement, there's lots of uh, real live policy activity, and so we're very pleased to be able to foster discussion uh, on those topics. The six sessions that we're going to be doing, uh, of which today is the first, will focus on a number of different types of uh, energy technology areas. Um, just so you know, and you can find the information on when these sessions will be eventually on our website, we're going to focus on grid infrastructure, software and cybersecurity, carbon management, advanced fusion, uh, excuse me, advanced nuclear and fusion, advanced transportation, and then finally we're going to wrap up with a conversation about uh, the energy innovation ecosystem. Uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this uh, with the support and input from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Technology Transitions and Chief Commercialization uh, Office uh, is we want to focus on two things. One, the real important work that's going on in the U.S. national lab system, but then two, what is the energy innovation ecosystem? How is it changing? How is the U.S. position uh, not only to compete in it, to, but to be able to drive new technologies from the lab into the market to scale in ways that help us meet some of our and global uh, energy challenges? So we think that this is a, a tremendous opportunity to both raise awareness and understanding of those issues, but also find uh, ways, concrete ways, that we can uh, advance those objectives. I am extremely pleased to have with us back today uh, Undersecretary for Science from the Department of Energy, Paul DeBar, uh, who not only oversees much of this work, but has been a real great uh, partner to he us here at CSIS in thinking about all of the really important things uh, that we have in the nation's energy uh, technology objectives, energy policy objectives. He's going to talk a little bit this morning about um, uh, DOE's priorities in this area. Also, today's session focusing on storage uh, and batteries uh, is really well timed uh, with last month's announcement from DOE on the grid, uh, 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 sort of, excuse me, the, the, the grand challenge uh, for storage. He's going to talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, and then we'll have a, a discussion. And then I'm going to introduce uh, my colleague, Howard Grunspecht, who's a senior associate here at CSIS and also uh, a senior economist at the MIT Energy Initiative, who's going to introduce a simply fabulous panel that we've got to talk about the state of energy innovation in the storage and battery technology space, and also how we move those uh, innovations and technologies into the market. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Paul. And uh, thank you very much for being here and for all your help with the series. Thank all right. you. All right. Thank, thank you. All right. Well, thanks, Sarah. So I, I think as she described, uh, this came out of a conversation that she and I had about I uh, think it would be worthwhile to have a series to discuss of where, where energy technologies are at. 
And uh, I think, you know, kind of starting, I'll start off with where, it, where technologies have come, and they've made a tremendous impact. And we have to kind of remind everybody about where we are here today, uh, and uh, that has been driven by innovation and technology. And then talk about what is needed in the energy sector for the different sorts of mix, what, what people want to accomplish, and what the state of play of technology is that, uh, of, of where things are being invested, in what areas, and, and, and what they could perform on, and, uh, and where they can fit into the stack, right? Uh, speaking of power kind of trading terminology. Uh, and, and, and what's possible? Uh, because one of the interesting things that we see at the National Lab Complex, given we are the largest investor in the world uh, for basic research in, in energy technologies, we see the very front end. And we wanted to talk about it with uh, the broader audience for policymakers, people interested in operating the sector, just to kind of see, see what we see. It's very interesting whenever I go internationally uh, to science events, we're planning our next one to go to Japan that I go to every year, and we talk a lot about energy. It's this large international science uh, conference. Um, and uh, you know, I, I sit down with people from the EU and Japan and all over the world, and the DOE National Lab Complex is, is by far the, the, uh, the most, uh, the largest investor uh, in basic research for new energy technologies. Uh, you don't see a lab like National Renewables Lab or uh, Idaho National Lab on nuclear. You don't see that in Europe, the, anywhere near the scale that we have it. And so America has an advantage uh, of, uh, of, uh, of this innovation system and technology. Uh, and it has made a difference. And so I thought it'd be, we thought it would be good to kind of talk about it uh, here across the six, uh, six uh, uh, panels that are going to happen over time. Uh, so I do want to give a bit of an introduction for people who don't fully know the National Lab Complex uh, and talk about the scale and everything that, w that we're investing in as a bit of a backdrop. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, the National Lab Complex really came out of an idea from Albert Einstein. Uh, so we're well over 70 years uh, kind of in operation. Uh, where, where the complex came from was Albert Einstein sent a letter to FDR talking about nuclear fission uh, and about what was going on in Germany that he and other physicists had just fled. This was 1939. Uh, and that uh, FDR should do something about it uh, given that there was weapons applications for fissioning of uranium and that uh, the U.S. government should work with a group of physicists, Enrico Fermi, Leo Zollard, and others who were uh, mentioned in the letter or helped draft the letter to the president to go do something about it. And so the Manhattan Project came out of that letter, uh, and the original Manhattan Project was executed at three national labs. Uh, the three initial large national labs was Oak Ridge uh, at Hanford, uh, which is now Pacific Northwest Lab, uh, and uh, Los Alamos. Uh, and there was work also at, at, at the predecessor of Argonne, Enrico Fermi, at the University of Chicago, and others. And at the end of World War II, um, uh, Vannevar Bush, who was the head of the Manhattan Project, who uh, recommended standing, uh, standing up the National Science Foundation, many of you know, also said, uh, also recommended that the National Lab Complex, that th these original national labs, should be also used for uh, non-defense research, uh, for science, for energy, uh, and uh, that has grown from three uh, national labs, the original, uh, to 17. 
And there are 60,000 researchers who work at the National Lab Complex. People don't have a real good kind of perception of the scale of the place. Uh, it is uh, the largest basic R&D organization in the world. On the non-defense side, we spend $18 billion a year in all sorts of innovation across the sciences and energy. Uh, we're the largest generator of Nobel Prize winners in the world, uh, primarily in chemistry and in physics. Uh, this last year, uh, between uh, the, the National Labs and us funding, uh, as a funding agency for doing research, uh, this last year, the, uh, the winner in the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, the group, was for lithium-ion battery chemistry. And obviously, uh, that group uh, that we helped funded, which was also worked with, uh, with Argonne National Lab over time, uh, has made a tremendous difference for personal electronics, for those of you who are still looking at your iPhones right now, um, uh, and, uh, and electric vehicles, uh, and, and utility scale, and, and also for medical devices. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of scale, there's a lot of accomplishment that happens at the National Lab Complex. And it's really, it's really as I would call, the, the, the crown jewel, as Secretary Perry used to always say, uh, of the R&D uh, uh, innovation cycle you know, system for the United States and, and therefore the world. Uh, and it's, uh, it, and so trying to hopefully everyone understand that and obviously it's a great honor to help run that system for a period of time. So uh, to talk about energy and energy production and how that kind of, you know, kind of fit into how, how things moved along, I think as many of you know, the National Lab Complex was rolled up into what became the Department of Energy in 1978 by Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter, at the time, for those of you who may remember, there was uh, gas lines all around the country. I was growing up in Oklahoma. There was gas lines in Oklahoma. It's a very strange thought in today's world to think that there's gas lines anywhere in the United States, and in particular in the middle of an oil and gas production area. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and President Carter wanted to go attack this. And he stood up DOE using the National Lab com Complex as a core for the Department of Energy uh, to, help drive, uh, to, to help drive innovation. Uh, there was a period of time kind of moving forward from there. There was an interesting debate, this gets into a bit of a policy kind of view of looking back at history, was that there was a lot of debate about restricting energy types. We were gonna run out of natural gas, so we should use coal, no joke. That was exactly what Jimmy Carter proposed. Um, uh, and uh, so there was a lot of, we don't have a lot of this, so let's focus on that. Uh, and there was a lot of picking and choosing that took, that took place o over there uh, on energy types. And there was a very interesting time period. I've been in the energy sector for uh, basically my whole 30 years of my, my, my adult life, um, in which there was a period of time in which energy innovation was really flat in this country. Uh, there was wind farms, we went to Altamont Pass in, in California back in the late 80s, and basically lots of wind turbines that were just not working. Uh, they were just literally broken, uh, and just, just the fields of these, of, these, of these wind turbines. You look at uh, natural gas uh, turbine heat rates, which is efficiency factors, flat, 
long periods of time. Uh, oil and gas production uh, technologies, basically nothing, right? People just kind of went to Saudi Arabia and others that had low cost production naturally because of the, uh, the how the fields were set up and, and the gas pressures on the fields. And so there was very little innovation that took place for, for, for a couple of decades. And starting about 10 years ago, there was a really interesting jump in energy innovation, right? All those wind turbines that weren't really working, solar was extremely expensive and you know, thought it would never be you know, really, really productive. There's a series of things that went, uh, went down the road in terms of ener energy um, innovation, which has brought us to a place here today which is radically different in the last 10 or three years, whatever kind of near-term um, you know, metrics you want to take a look at. I'll, I'll list you through a few of those. So uh, uh, um, about 10 years ago, uh, the U.S. was importing about 50% uh, of all its oil and gas needs. Uh, we were uh, in the range of about 6 million barrels of crude a day production in the U.S. and was going down. Uh, we were, uh, uh, there was a, a lot of uh, discussion about incredibly high energy prices as a result of all that. Crude hit. I think almost $150 a barrel at one point. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, you know how, how, how do we make do with less, right? And as a part of all that, the jobs associated with energy to a large degree were overseas. Uh, you went to go spend money to, to go fill up your car, and that dollar went very quickly overseas to Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Nigeria or, or, or elsewhere. But what happened in, in, in this period of time, just to list through a few of the technologies, oil and gas production cost, uh, lifting costs dropped by about 60 to 70 percent. And we have now uh, doubled our oil and gas production in this country. And the United States is now the number one producer of crude oil in the world. And the U.S. is the number one producer of natural gas in the world. Uh, we're now the number three exporter of crude oil in the world, and we're probably going to number one, surpassing Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you look at uh, wind turbine efficiency rates, I did. I ran a large wind business uh, in, in, uh, you know, uh, prior to this job. Um, uh, if you look at that, if you look at the cost per megawatt hour, which a lot of it was based on capacity factors for wind, for those who can understand the technologies for wind, um, they moved up from the low 20s of uh, capacity uh, to 40s offshore, now 60%. So give or take 100% improvement in wind, in wind over the last few years, 100% improvement. Solar, something the DOE did with SunShot, now it just kind of relates to the grand challenge that we're doing here on, on storage. SunShot, uh, which was driving technology for solar, uh, depending on where you want to start, it, anywhere, it went anywhere from a 90% reduction in cost to 99%, depending on where you wanted to start, uh, you know, where the solar cost production was. That is a massive reduction uh, in cost and being able to, to put solar, solar on people's homes, large uh, utility-scale solar. All that today, uh, and, I, and, uh, and, and I talked about lithium-ion batteries. Obviously, there was a period of time in which very traditional old lead acid had no real applicability to being able to deploy it for utility scale, for your electronics, for your phone, um, for cars, certainly. Uh, and now the, the, that technology, lithium-ion batteries, are economic without any tax incentives or mandates. 
Okay, everything, and I'll stop there, but there's a whole series of these things that have happened which has been technology and innovation driven. And America's leadership in this, if you look at all those, uh, you know, whether it's how we lift oil and gas production, how we do batteries, how we do wind, how we do solar, the United States has been at the lead of that. And to a large degree, it was not driven by mandates. To a large degree, it was driven by technology and innovation. And to a large degree, DOE is just a very large R&D business, right? I mean, if you, if you think about the look of the, if you look at the dollars that are spent and the way we're focused, we're cer certainly very much focused on policy, but if you look at dollars, uh, policy doesn't take a lot of dollars compared to, <laughs> compared, compared to research, um, uh, that, that, if, that uh, where we are in the world and where we are as a country is driven by R&D. Um, so, uh, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the department uh, and then I'll talk uh, specifically about the storage side. So, what's really interesting here in the near term, and I think people may have, have, uh, have kind of missed this, but in the last three years, R&D spend f across the federal footprint is at, uh, has increased to all-time highs. And I want to kind of take, you know, step aside all the kind of battles on, on budgets and proposals. But what was passed by Congress and signed by the President was, uh, was all-time high R&D spend at NASA, at NSF, at NIH, at DOE. Um, the DOE Office of Science, which drives the basic research across this, is up 31% in the last three years. Uh, and we were able to start every major piece of research infrastructure, every light source, every supercomputer, uh, everything, every lab that we want to do storage and battery on, we were able to start all of it all at once. And so now all of a sudden, and by the way, it's not just DOE, as I said, you know, we're going, we're going back to the moon permanently. Um, and if you look at the NASA budget and the NASA support associated with that, look at NIH, I think they're around $42 billion, uh, you know, solving the first uh, genetic disease using uh, gene editing uh, ever. Uh, and it's a very pointy end of the spear of a lot of other things that, that's going to go on uh, in, the, in the area of, uh, of curing diseases with, uh, with genomics. Um, is that there's been a, a great degree of interest uh, around, uh, around investment in R&D. Part of it is the love of science, depending on who you talk to. Part of it is uh, economic impact of R&D uh, of, of across the board. Uh, part of it is international competition. There's a lot of different drivers. But if you look at the various bills that have been proposed, uh, uh, OMB, um, uh, we at the administration proposed a very large increase that was introduced uh, here a couple weeks ago uh, called Industries of the Future. Uh, there's one by Senator Schumer, there's one by Senator Alexander, there's one by the House Republicans and the Science Committee that was introduced. There's a whole series of these things that, uh, that are proposing very large additional increases in these areas. So there's not certain exactly what's going to happen you know, out of all that, but the, the, if you look at the near-term technology improvements, which had a dramatic impact, if you look at the near-term uh, the last three years increases, uh, and if you look at the various proposals, it's a really interesting time in this town. And I, I know there's many people in the, uh, who are sitting here who are part of that dialogue and, uh, and looking at some very specific pieces of legislation that are, that are out there that could do that. 
it's not only important for us to be able to talk about the innovations, but it's also important about how do we actually move it out of the lab and get it into deployment. Uh, it's a big thing that we've certainly focused on uh, when Secretary Perry uh, was looking at kind of helping fill out the department and, and, and uh, we're, all, we're all still there under Secretary Briette. Um, it was that uh, he said, I want, every, I want everyone who works here to have a background in both the public and private sectors. Right? That was a criteria of his, uh, of someone who knew that because the problem with the National Lab Complex is not content. Okay, we have way too much content that we create. 60,000 people and $18 billion to spend a year um, means that we are generating ideas that I frankly just had a tiny, tiny fraction of, you know, AI, quantum genomics. This is a long list of things uh, in addition to energy. The challenge is that most of our labs literally have a fence around them. Uh, and it's because we still do national security work at the National Lab Complex. And, uh, and, and one analogy to the National Lab Complex is, is a very large university system, uh, similar to the University of California system, but instead of 10 campuses, we have 17. Uh, and so we have researchers, uh, principal investigators, working on individual research strings and different ideas. Um, and you know, they're funded by us and by others uh, to go ahead and do that. Um, but they, they get it up to a point and, and many of them would just publish and then just kind of move on. And that's not the best way to actually move an energy technology or any other sort of technology out to the marketplace, publish and then just hope someone else reads it and tries to do something with it. So we've been pushing very hard around commercialization and obviously our energy R&D portfolios at the front end of things that can be deployed into the market. Um, so we stood up uh, 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 under, under, uh, under our, our, our administration uh, the first chief commercialization officer for the department. Uh, if you think about the amount of IP that we create, the amount of content that we create, uh, how do we actually make those connections better? How do we increase awareness? And one of the main reasons I wanted to do this effectively is what uh, Sarah was saying and I was saying, to do this series is actually just to increase awareness for you all and for people who can, who can watch this can kind of see what we're doing and realize you know, that there's, that there's uh, content that we want to be able to push out the door. And then how do we also help fund it at the end of the day? And we've increased some funding uh, to actually help move some of that technology, once again, once invented in the, in the complex, how to help support moving that out the door, right? So uh, that's a big part of what, of what we've been trying to do across the board. So uh, I want to talk now a bit about uh, energy storage and the very specific things that we're doing there. As we came in as a leadership team, when we looked at all the different areas of energy, and once again, from a policy point of view, I think as many of you have heard before, but to be a bit, of, uh, we've been talking about it for two and a half years now, but we're about all the above. And all the above means that let, we want to invest in energy technologies across the board and let the innovators, let the entrepreneurs to drive each of the energy technologies to increase availability, to lower costs and to reduce emissions. Relatively straightforward. And, to, and whether people are working on nuclear, advanced nuclear, or fusion, or on grid, uh, grid technologies across the board, we fund across the board and see where those technologies create uh, um, opportunities for people who want to use it as the energy system changes and being able to deploy it. 
um, and, uh, and not knowing where it all goes, but the competition across energy types and, and, and innovators is an important part. As we looked at all that, uh, one of the primary areas uh, that, that we think was ripe for the, uh, where the technology possibilities were and the applicability was in energy storage. Uh, I think there's a reason why we're doing this first out of the, out of the, out of the six. Um, if, you, if you take a look, you know, once again, I went through the history of what energy storage has been able to accomplish. It's actually, uh, it was actually, even from my point of view, uh, you know, sitting at the front end of seeing these things and where what's going on, even I was stunned by the utility scale storage, uh, uh, the scale of what's been announced. Um, it was after we were already in office that uh, Elon Musk announced that he was going to go build a first utility scale lithium-ion battery storage in Australia. I forget the exact number, about 12, 12 megawatts or something like that. Uh, and, I, and I remember looking at that and going, like, well, that's, that's interesting. And still, 12 isn't very big, by the way, as for those of you who know the power sector. But it's interesting that, you know, that he thought he was going to be able to do that. Uh, and moving that along. Well, not that long after that, there was a series of uh, engagements that we, that we had privately about where that was going in terms of a technology with big utilities, uh, and then just a whole series of announcements in California, in Nevada. There's now a 491 megawatt lithium-ion utility-scale battery proposed looking to get built in Florida. Okay, that's in the period of about two years. It went from, that's an interesting science experiment, to uh, basically large nuclear power plant scale lithium ion battery deployment in the utility system. And I was talking, this was next era, this is Florida Power and Light who's doing this down in Florida. And there, this is very interesting from a regulatory point of view about, you know, from an econ economics and a regulatory point of view, which is uh, they're, they're, they're doing this without tax incentives, and they, they're doing it in their regulated utility, meaning that they have to go to the utility regulator and convince them this is the cost-effective solution for this particular deployment, which was really a capacity support for this area of Florida. And so this is a market data point in, star, in storage that's something the size of a giant power plant once again, is cost-effective and it's gonna be defended publicly as being cost-effective as the right technology to solve that technology solution in a cost-effective way. It was truly amazing to see that. The other things that I saw that were really also amazing from an energy storage point of view was uh, this advent, there's been some more recent writing about this, but this really kind of started really getting obvious about a year and a half ago, um, was the, the, the hybrid, uh, either solar and battery and wind and battery joint deployments, right, at a single site. And uh, the first, the first uh, kind of very public uh, visual point around where, where cost has been driven on those uh, was a series of, of utility bids in the United States once again, not someplace else, here in the United States, because there were utilities and they were, doing, they were getting public bids that were out there, so you saw their prices. And so you started seeing um, uh, uh, pr uh, PPA prices uh, for the combo wind battery and or uh, solar and battery uh, kind of uh, in the range of about, uh, of, of around three cents. 
Um, and uh, if you actually backed out, I did this actually, I did this math myself having a bit of experience in the power markets. If you backed out the tax incentives associated with the solar, the ITC or the PTC for the wind that were embedded in, uh, embedded in, the, um, in the bids, because there, there were still tax incentives in those proposals. But if you back them out, they were peri passu. They were, they were grid parity to gas in those regions. And so that was fascinating because, once again, it shows you that the technology associated with some of these kind of new developments was really beginning to bend the cost curve where potentially uh, the uh, incentives are no longer needed, at least for a portion of it. They were peri passu if you backed it out. Now, so there's a number of interesting things that have happened here in the near term from our point of view is, is there greater opportunity to drive that even harder? And so one of the things, so is, you, you'll hear about this uh, here, here in a little bit from, uh, from my colleagues, uh, it was as we sat down internally with the people running our various battery technology areas, we thought that there was possibilities to improve on various different performance metrics of storage. Um, so that could be uh, cycles, that could be um, cost, uh, you know, a number of different uh, power to weight ratio, which is more important for cars. Um, that there was a possibility with next generation storage, next generation chemistries, that you could get to performance metrics that are three to 500% better than lithium ion. Okay, so everyone kind of stop and think about that for a quick second. I'm not saying we're going to get there, but three to five times means a thousand mile charge. Okay, so instead of a, you know, everyone kind of looks at it, their current Teslas, which are wonderful pieces of technology, and America's leadership obviously associated with that, that's in the three to 350 mile range. Okay, that's like, and, and that's quite, uh, attractive to people in the market. They're obviously doing quite well with performance metrics like that. Imagine if it's a thousand. Okay. Imagine if the battery storage technology for utilities is on the cost side. Imagine if we're able to drive different materials and different performance metrics and, and effectively drive down the, the, the dollar per kilowatt of capacity for batteries, kind of on the inverse of that three to five times. So call it 60 percent reduction in cost. So the ability to deploy next generation storage that has an ability to jump on that sort of scale and what that allows uh, is uh, as a possibility is truly amazing. So we decided that this was one of the major areas that we thought had great potential market capabilities. We thought the technology is there to push it forward. And finally, we as a DOE National Lab Complex, one of our biggest areas that we have history in, I talked about earlier effectively, is in chemistry. And we do tremendous amounts of chemistry all, all across uh, the complex, including in storage, but also other types of chemistry. And so we thought it was great for us to, to focus our dollars. So we just announced a grand challenge, first grand challenge uh, that, that we've, uh, that we've uh, deployed on, on this sort of scale uh, for next generation batteries to accomplish what I just described. I won't repeat that. So the, the, there's a number of tracks that, we've, uh, uh, that we decided to move down the road on associated with how do we manage this. We certainly looked at Sunshot, which was a predecessor uh, of, uh, of an effort like this, done at DOE. 
Um, Sunshot was the effort that drove down the PV costs that I described earlier. Uh, Sunshot was tremendously successful as an R&D enter enterprise. Uh, and how the different components on panels, on inverters, right, how do you actually scale that up? Uh, we helped, uh, the department helped drive that incredibly successfully. Uh, so as we looked at that, as we looked at the different uh, tranches associated with how to go attack this, there was a, a swim stream focused on the science, uh, and whether that's in hydrogen or, you know, whether it's in next generation chemistries, um, you know, we, so we have a science stream associated with this. We have a scaling of prototypes. That's the second uh, area that we focused on in this. Uh, we have one on, uh, on workforce training. Uh, but the one that uh, did not work well under Sunshot was uh, uh, the vast majority of that technology, which is now deployed in the United States and around the world, once again, very effectively from a technology and a performance, emissions, all that kind of point of view, uh, is mostly built not in the United States. So as a representative of the American people, we should be able to hit on kind of everything. So it's, not import it's, uh, it's important for us not only to develop the technology, and make an impact and a difference in, the, and, in all the different applications I just described. But let's not forget that the American people give us dollars to go do this, and we should have uh, the maximum impact as possible. It's not just on new technology, it's not just on performance and deployment, but we should do a better job at having it being built here. And amongst other things, I have 30,000 people who work for me who are mostly union members across the, uh, the country at various DOE sites. And I sit down at the House of Labor down, down, down the road here uh, and talk about how do we make certain that things are built here. And so we have a, so what was not really included in Sunshot, which was how do we guarantee that there is a, you know, a, a very important portion of the, of the supply chain and manufacturing done in the United States, we have a dedicated portion of that is associated with that. So I don't think anyone uh, would disagree that that's important. So us working with manufacturers concurrently to build it here in the United States, once again, it could be with, you know, we do lots of work with Toyota and, and uh, Volkswagen. We just announced a new, a, new, a new effort on. So it's not about where the country is specifically from, but we, wanted, we, we would like it to be at least partially or better built here uh, by factories here and by American workers here. So that's what we just announced. This is an exciting area, um, uh, you know, what we see, and we think this is a great first topic to, to discuss about, about where things are going. Great. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. That was wonderful. You To, uh, to where we are today. I'm going to ask, uh, where I, did, I didn't bring up dark matter or dark energy yeah, I, or, or antimatter, which is actually, <laughs> we do that too, but we're not going to get into that. I do think you have one of the coolest jobs in the federal government. I mean, you just watch your Twitter feed and see where you get to go, and it's sort of like a kid in a technology candy store. Um, I, I'm going to, we're going to open it up for a few questions, just one round of questions, so I'll take a couple of them, but I do want to ask two things based on your comments, because I think you're right. There's been an amazing amount of, uh, of uh, innovation and technological progress over the last decade and across the board, quite frankly, in the energy space. It's an amazing story. We have a very dynamic conversation around innovation right now. Two things I wanted to ask you about. One, you know, obviously the budget came out. You talked a little bit about it. 
you could be, you know, critics of the administration would say, yes, you get more money, but you're asking for less. So what, what gives in that conversation? What's going on there? How do you think about it, particularly as you're looking across the lab complex and you're thinking about cultivating a more vibrant sort of energy ecosystem? How does that conversation sort of live in your world? And then the second is on this energy storage grand challenge, which I'm sure the, the panel will have some thoughts on as well. It is, there, there is a role for investment and policy, right? So like innovation is sort of a push-pull dynamic. <coughs> because the Grand Challenge and Sunshot, you know, in, incorporate more than just an investment in basic R&D, but all the way down to where is this stuff manufactured? How do we think about this in a, in a more holistic way? Yeah. What are the tools that, are, that you're thinking about that are either within your purview or you need outside your purview to think about how you actually accomplish some of those things? So we'll do, do, do those two and then okay. we'll take a quick round of questions. So, uh, you know, budgets, as many people in this town know, is a very macro topic. It's across the whole system. We're talking about defense. We're talking about, you know, uh, all, all the different areas, agriculture and NOAA. And, you know, there's lots, lot, there's lots of, uh, you know, the, the federal budget, the federal uh, footprint is, is very large. Uh, obviously, there's a, a much above my pay grade. How do we allocate that and how we handle the deficit? Uh, uh, you know, is, is a broader topic about that. And I think, um, you know, as, uh, as, as people kind of allocated dollars, given those constraints that is kind of above our level, um, those were the decisions that were made. What we're able to control is what are the areas that we want to focus on. And so the storage topic, right, is one that we've, you know, clearly decided to focus on. And there's a few others that uh, highlight in there, such as, you know, quantum and artificial intelligence and others that I won't get into. So there's areas of focus associated with that. Um, obviously, this is a proposal to Congress, and Congress is the one that, you know, decides, you know, what to do. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, I'm actually quite positive about that, only because from data, from you know, the last three years worth of data, um, you know, there's been consensus by, uh, by Congress and the President uh, uh, for, for us to, uh, to, to do the budgets. And, and I think uh, I'm, I'm equally as positive at the end of the day and, and how things will come out. Um, so on your second question, which is about tools, um, you know, uh, you know, once again, one, one set of tools is obviously to create content, right? And so that's actually doing our research and so on. Uh, but uh, beyond that, um, the, another tool is, uh, you know, besides, you know, actual awareness is actually entering into agreements with private sector, right? With entrepreneurs, with startups, with companies. And so within uh, the, the, our, our chief commercialization officer office, and he's still in the back of the room probably, there he is. You, you moved, I think, they, yeah. You were over there, right? It got, yeah, it's like, um, um, uh, is the ability for us to sign up um, you know, agreements to try to commercialize this with, a, with, with various entities in the private sector. So uh, a lot of people may not realize kind of how, you know, how, how we do this. Um, so uh, one, one set is we create our own content and our own IP with our own research dollars. So we have the facilities and then we fund people to go do research. If we create our own IP and it reaches a point that we did it all on our own, we can go license that IP. 
Okay, so we'll publish, we'll do research, we'll, you know, uh, 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 and then when we publish, and with dialogues like this, people go like, oh, well, doing a cobalt-free battery with a 30% performance characteristics uh, improvement, and by the way, we just entered into an agreement on that in Oak Ridge two weeks ago uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a startup, um, uh, is that we can license what we have created. So that's one tool that we have. The second tool is uh, what's called a cooperative research agreement. A cooperative research agreement to a large degree is we've been investing in the research area, so in the storage chemistry and so on, and someone else comes along and says, we want to help fund that and we want to jointly work on that particular chemistry or that particular technology together, then we negotiate basically a split of the IP and the dollars and the kind of what we bring to the table and what they bring to the table. Uh, and uh, we enter into a cooperative agreement. And uh, so that's a second tool. The third one uh, is something that we call work for others. So work for others um, is that if someone comes to us and said, you at the DOE have researchers and facilities that I don't have at my company, right? And, and a lot of these are, are uh, entrepreneurs who don't have the ability to build what we build. And one of the big advantages of the DOE complex is that the American taxpayer invests in these facilities that people can come and use. When we charge, we don't charge that much in the big scheme of how much it costs for us to build it, but, um, but, but we do charge if someone wants to come in and do that, so I'll give you an example. We do that for Tesla on this topic, okay? Uh, we don't do as much lithium ion research as, as some others. Uh, from our point of view, we're much more on the basic research side, trying to drive next generation ideas, right? And technologies, including chemistries. But if someone wants to come along and says, hey, can we help optimize lithium ion battery design and performance, and, and we'll, we, we will pay you, right, National Lab X, um, and then they, whoever they is, Tesla in this example case, uh, will completely own the IP. They're paying for us. We're like a contract researcher. Um, so those are the three major tools that we have. And, and once again, awareness like this and engagement and reach out is all part of, okay, so how, can, how within those tools do we find people to go work with on, on this? Great. Okay. I'm going to, we're uh, running just a little bit over time, but I do want to take one quick round of questions. So if you could wait for the mic, name an affiliation, question in the form of a quick question, we'll get in maybe three of them. So right here, and then right here, and then right here. Yeah. Hi, David Winks with AccuSite. Uh, uh, Paul, in this year's NDAA and the OMB memo on FY21 spending on R&D, uh, there are actions to improve resilience to geomagnetic uh, uh, disturbances and electromagnetic pulse. As we look at these innovations, uh, how do we, how can we encourage building resilience into these innovations <coughs> for those uh, important topics? Okay, so we'll talk about that. And then you. Thank you for informative speech. Uh, I, my name is Akinori Kahata. Uh, I'm a graduate student of the GW, and I was working at the Japanese government, METI. And my question is relationship with uh, relationship between local government and DOE. Uh, I think which energy is effective or which energy, to, what energy is important it depends on local regulation or state level regulation. So how to 
decide the direction of the U.S. energy policy or some. It depends on. Uh, I think uh, harmonization or collaboration is a very important thing for energy policy. Thank you. I'll take one right here. I'm Bob Hershey, I'm a consultant. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about the work going on in other kinds of batteries besides the lithium-ion? Yeah. Okay, great. And we'll cover some of that too in the yeah. panel as well, so. Okay, so uh, on, the, on, the, on the first question about resilience, uh, obviously this topic is really, it's a primary driver. Um, uh, obviously, if you, if you think about uh, EMF and, uh, and, and, and that sort of impact, there's a lot of, and there's many other resilience sort of topics uh, that, that, uh, that are affected about this. One of the interesting things is that as, as technologies have, have uh, uh, improved, one of the outgrowths of that is, uh, is that much more distributed energy is most likely. I was actually just with a, a major utility here this last week um, who said that they may not in the foreseeable future ever look at building a central giant power plant again. Uh, again. And it was really interesting. I was like, you know, like, you know, why? I mean, typically large utilities like extremely large. Um, and they said, uh, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of distributed uh, generation types that are happening across the, the, the you know, uh, that are being developed. Then they said something really interesting uh, that, um, uh, that uh, and once again, this big companies that need to kind of make capital decisions. They said um, that, uh, that the pace of um, improvement in technologies that I just talked quite a bit about is happening at a pace to the at that if they go build, you know, a five hundred million dollar power plant that in, in it, it, that has a lifespan of thirty years, right? Of a, you know how how long it would be you know available uh, from a from a from a physical kind of you know technology performance point of view, that that the the rate of change is going so fast that investing in something very large and very big that will lock them into uh, something for 30 years is not a great idea. Yeah. It, was, it was a really interesting comment of a practical, you know, you know, someone who actually has to do these things, right, uh, versus someone who spends their day talking about innovation. And I, 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 I being a technologist, I, I'm, I'm uh, at least, um, semi-aware, hopefully, of, of, uh, of my biases. And my biases are clearly, I think a lot of innovation can happen. But when someone who actually has to put money to work said, we see it happening and therefore we're changing our investment cycle, as a result means it's not just me saying that, it's someone you know, who's a real, a real customer. Um, so, uh, and you talked a bit about chemistries. I might, def I might default to that. I think, yeah. I think uh, the rest of the panel can talk about that quite a bit coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a sort of question, and I do think, uh, just very quickly, oh, yeah. on the policy yeah, environment, sorry. the local policy environment. Yes. I mean, a lot of this innovation is also happening because there's a market pull in a lot of these places too, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, on, on the local front, so, um, you know, one of the interesting things that you kind of forget about it, sitting here in the United States is that we are really big, uh, and um, uh, it's a really big country. And if you, you go to most countries in the world, they're smaller than us. And as a result, um, they're a bit more homogenous when it comes to 
energy resources, right? I mean, if you go to Austria or something, right? It's not a very big <laughs> country, right? Or, a lot, you know, I just picked on them, right? But it's, it's a lot of, the United States is very big. And as a result, the, 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 the energy resources available in Maine versus in Oklahoma versus in Alaska or Hawaii is radically different. And so you actually need it to be very localized because the resources, the needs, um, are very, very different in the United States. And so developing a portfolio, at least from our point of view, right, we're trying to help the country, right, technology overall, the in energy industry overall, but of course the whole United States as, as, as investors of the American taxpayers' money. Um, that feeds into uh, to the, to the all of the above because geothermal is going to work in the big island of Hawaii, but it's not going to work in most areas of the United States. Um, and so it's actually really important for us, I think, as kind of co cohesion across the country, right? We're not just in, in investing in things that work well in Hawaii, right, or California or in Texas. And so it is important for us to invest across the board because different areas are, are, you know, have different pull, have different resources, different policies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a federal system, right? The United States is a federal system, and California will be very different than Virginia, right, in terms of those decisions. So, um, once again, we primarily try to create technology, push it out the door, and, and, and try to see where it can be applied, and we know that they can be applied in different localities given those drivers. Well, Paul, there's a, a huge number of questions in the audience for you. There's a bunch coming at me on Twitter. A lot of them have this theme, which I hope we're going to get to in the panel, which is, you know, what is this sort of virtuous cycle of investing in innovation and, and sort of deploying things into the market, the role of policy, all of those types of things. So I think we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that in, in the discussion as well. But I just want to say thank you for uh, kicking off this series, for working with us on it. We're very excited on, uh, about it and, uh, and look forward to doing more. So thank you very much okay. for joining us thank today. You. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. I'd now like to introduce, ask the second panel to come up and introduce my colleague Howard Grunspecht, who is a former uh, deputy administrator at the uh, uh, Energy Information Administration, and a senior associate here at CSIS, a senior, you're senior everything, Howard, senior uh, energy economist at MIT, and is working to coordinate uh, the storage uh, study that's going on at MIT right now. So look forward to this really great panel discussion. Come on up. Yes, come on up. Well, thank you, Sarah, and uh, it's great to be here. Uh, so we're going to do the panel discussion. We have three wonderful panelists. Uh, George Crabtree, immediately next to me, is senior scientist and distinguished fellow at Argonne National Lab. He is director of the uh, Joint Center for Energy Storage Research and you know, has responsibility for the strategy and the goals and the operational plan. Uh, he's published more than uh, 440 papers in leading scientific journals, uh, 18,000 citations or more, I guess. That's something that the people in academia really care about. Broad research interests in energy storage materials, superconductors, uh, widely recognized with many professional awards, including the uh, Kamerling Onis Award, uh, 
prestigious four DOE awards for outstanding scientific accomplishment, R&D 100 award, important for the given this. Uh, and again, he's uh, a lot of experience, uh, led many panels for the department, uh, testified before Congress on a variety of issues. Immediately next to him is uh, my colleague Yetming Chang, Kyocera professor in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering at MIT. Uh, focuses a lot on uh, advanced uh, materials energy storage. Published says about 300 scientific papers, probably more by now. Holds over 80 U.S. patents, more than 60 of which have been licensed to or held by practicing companies. Uh, serves on numerous government academic advisory committees. He's also received many awards uh, from uh, you know the the academic organizations. Also been recognized by the Economist uh, magazine with an Innovation Award. Also has R&D 100 and R&D 100 Editor's Choice Awards. Uh, it doesn't say so in his resume, but he's a, a serious uh, store, serial storage entrepreneur, I guess would be a description, having co-founded uh, companies involved in uh, storage technology, including Form Energy, Desktop Metal, 24M, A123, and American Superconductor. And last but not least, we have uh, Justin Felt. He's the manager of strategic planning at uh, Baltimore Gas and Electric. He heads the strategy team and his development of sustainment of storage, solar power, and other programs that provide safe and clean services. Uh, prior to joining BGE, he advised the Department of Defense on the development of resilient uh, and renewable on-site power systems, part of the Army's Office of Energy Initiatives and the Air Force, Force Office of Energy Assurance. And he also has experience at Thomson Reuters, where he acted as the head of renewable market strategy. Actually, I think all parts of Justin's experience are relevant to today's discussion. So I may actually have some questions about uh, that as well. So the mechanics, pretty simple. Uh, I'll offer some very brief uh, openers to provide context. And each of the panelists, we ask to provide 10 to 12 minutes of opening comments. After the presentations, we'll have a little bit of discussion. And then we'll open it up to uh, audience questions. So uh, a lot of interest, a lot to do. So let me just offer some brief observations. First, there's a great interest in storage shown by the audience here and the uh, online on the webcast. And there are other indicators, clearly the rapid growth uh, of electrified transportation, which now even at low levels of EV penetration is the main market for lithium ion batteries and market penetration is expected to grow. Uh, initial deployment of battery storage on electricity systems, which I, I think uh, is happening, uh, along with the recent and anticipated growth in solar and wind generation, which could greatly expand the future role for storage in electric systems and may require storage with different attributes, and I'm sure our panelists will get to that. High policy interest, a lot of uh, policy people in the room, that happens at CSIS. Uh, but also, you know, high interest in Congress, high interest in the administration, the FERC is interested, the states are interested, came up in, in Paul's remarks at the end, both in terms of legislation and in terms of regulatory action. So there's a lot going on. Uh, so first observation is high interest. Second observation, uh, today at least we're using similar type of, of batteries in both uh, the, the vehicle market and the uh, electricity system market. However, the electricity system storage has many different use cases, and several factors kind of suggest that the electricity system may, over time, require storage technologies that diverge 
from those that are used in electrified transportation. And, uh, you know, there's this question of the duration of storage. So most of the vehicle-type batteries, uh, if you look at the range of the vehicles, I think Paul talked a little bit about that, uh, they would kind of have a duration of maybe, if you have a 300-mile range at, you know, 60 miles an hour, kind of, that's a five-hour duration type of battery, the ratio of, of power to energy. Uh, many of the installations going on now in, in electricity systems use, leverage those types of batteries, and they use them in, in applications, you know, with the, I think the average installation last year had something like 2.5 hours of duration, kind of the ratio of, of the energy in, mega, in megawatt out, in watt hours to the power in, in watts. And, uh, you know, but there's a somewhat wider range of utilization and duration patterns for uh, electric system storage applications than for electric vehicles. And you're also going to care maybe differently. Obviously, it's the energy density is extremely important if you're carrying the thing around with you, as a vehicle by definition does. The energy density may be a less important characteristic if, if you're not carrying around with you. But there are other, you know, different values that are going to be placed on different characteristics in the different uh, use cases. So that is something that will have to be considered. And finally, there, you know, the cost and performance requirements may differ a bit. So uh, I know that, you know, this is not about electric vehicles per se, but, but people talk about if we got the cost of a battery down to $100 a kilowatt hour in rough terms, maybe a little bit less, that would be great for vehicles in terms of the competitiveness of electric vehicles versus, uh, you know, conventional vehicles. Uh, Clearly, those batteries do work in the electric power system. I mean, they initially used for ancillary services, now being used for, you know, substitution for peakers, as discussed earlier. But for some of these other applications, you know, that, that same kind of cost level may not really be close to being adequate. So with that, sort of as an introduction, uh, you know, storage technologies are likely to be growing importance not just in EVs in the electric system, but those are two I've kind of picked out. But EV storage will not necessarily pave the way for other applications of storage as they have really done over the past decade. So without further ado, end the filibuster and turn it over to George Crabtree uh, for his remarks. Thank you, George. Wonderful, thanks, Howard. Push a button here. Am I on? Yeah. Great time for a conference like this, as Paul mentioned in his opening remarks. So I have a couple of slides, if we can get them displayed, uh, that I would like to talk a little bit about the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, and then a little bit more. Do I just push something? Let's see if this will work. This one, right? There we go. Jump back. Should I go backwards? Oh, there we go. Yeah, Thank you. You can give my talk. I, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> okay, we're, we're organized here. Thanks so much. Uh, talk a little bit about the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, what we do, and then I only have two slides. That's the first slide. Second one on the ecosystem that we heard about uh, in Paul's remarks and elsewhere for energy storage. So here uh, on the right-hand side, you see our Joint Center for Energy Storage Research uh, mnemonic. 
and the idea is to build transformative materials, chemistries, and architectures for next generation batteries. And we do that in a very special way, not trial and error, not Thomas Edison on steroids, but by understanding the atomic and molecular level origin of battery behavior and designing at the atomic and molecular level. So our, our phrase for this is we're building batteries from the bottom up, where every atom and every molecule plays a prescribed role in producing a targeted overall battery behavior. This is a new idea. Couldn't have done this 10 years ago because we did not understand the atomic and molecular level origins of electrochemistry well enough. With modern tools and especially with computation, uh, we can now do that. So uh, let me, uh, we'll get there. <coughs> Here we go. So here's a little bit about what Jay Caesar has done. We're six and a half years old, founded in 2012. A uh, little bit of a complicated slide, but on the left-hand side, you see some of the new tools that we introduced. One of those is massive computation on the computer of materials before we make them in the lab. So one example is looking for a magnesium cathode. We looked at 1,800 different combinations of working ions and, and, and cathodes all on the computer. Uh, this took us a couple of years. If we had tried to do that in the laboratory, it would have taken an army of graduate students their whole career. They would do nothing else but this, and they would never graduate. Uh, so that's, that's an example of how efficient this computation is. Uh, we found five that we thought would work. We made three of those five, and those three all did intercalate magnesium. That was our target working ion, uh, and that saved an enormous amount of time. Uh, we did a similar thing with electrolyte genome. Uh, that's the second box down. So instead of looking at uh, solids, crystalline solids, we looked at liquids. And those liquids are critical to the lithium-ion battery and to every other battery. So we cataloged tens of thousands of liquid organic molecules that could be used for future electrolytes, uh, and that has been a tremendous boon. We make both of these uh, tools open to the entire community. So they're on what's called the Materials Project, and any researcher can dial in and, and use uh, these resources. We have a special lab. This is the third box down for looking at surface phenomena. It's a state-of-the-art lab. It applies all kinds of characterization techniques to the surface, and that's where all the electrochemistry happens. And finally, techno-economic modeling, which tells us in advance what uh, batteries are likely to work for what applications, and then we focus on those. So lots of frontier science advances, which I won't go into, but I do want to talk about four batteries that we targeted for development, and that's the, the red uh, thing in the middle. Uh, one is introducing a new concept for flow batteries with organic materials, in fact, polymers. We call them redox MERS. Uh, that you can design to do change the voltage to optimize the solubility, which is basically energy density, uh, to uh, extend the lifetime. Much more flexibility than typical aqueous uh, flow batteries that are out there now. Uh, so this was a new idea that we introduced. Actually, Jay Caesar owns it. The air-breathing aqueous sulfur battery, which I think Yet Ming will talk about uh, next, which is a long-duration battery made from inexpensive materials. 
this, the cheapest materials you can imagine. Sulfur, byproduct of, of petroleum reforming, will never run out of it. Uh, it will always be inexpensive. Um, air, well, plenty of air around, and water. So uh, that was spun out, then the very right-hand side, the bottom picture, shows Form Energy, that was the startup company that came out of Jay Caesar's program here, and again, yet we'll tell you much more about that. So those two are for the grid. For the car, we have uh, multivalent uh, magnesium batteries. Magnesium has two charges on it, lithium has one. So every time a magnesium uh, ion goes through a chemical reaction, twice as much energy is stored or released, and that's a huge step forward. And then we have a lithium sulfur battery, which is the very bottom thing there in blue, uh, which has uh, very high theoretical energy density, and that's the appeal of it. So uh, we did spin out three companies, I already mentioned Form Energy. On the right, also Blue Current, which is looking at solid state electrolytes. And Sepion in the middle there, which makes uh, very inexpensive polymer membranes that are size selective and replace much more expensive and often ineffective ion exchange membranes, which had been around for a while. And I mentioned Form Energy. The picture at the bottom there, we were lucky enough to win the Secretary of Energy Achievement Award in August of 2018. And we like very much having the recognition, but I think the value of that is that it lets us push more aggressively on things in the future that maybe we wouldn't, our, our sponsors and the community wouldn't have had the confidence in us if, if we hadn't won that award. So my uh, last slide, here it is. Battery technology is an ecosystem. And you see here uh, on the left the raw material supply chain, which is absolutely critical to batteries. And many of those supply chains, as we've heard today, are outside the United States. There's the battery itself, already a complicated uh, device with lots of, in a sense, moving parts, although they're chemically moving and not mechanically moving. And then lots of applications, and Paul has already referred to this from uh, things in the grid, which are sort of in the center, center right there, transportation on the, on the bottom right, and that includes not only personal cars, which is where all the talk is now, but uh, things like buses should be electrified, long-haul freight trucks take something from Boston to uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, you need a different kind of battery for that. And remarkably, electric flight, which is getting a lot of attention in the last year or so. Uh, as you may know from driving your Teslas around, it's a lot cheaper to drive a mile on electricity than it is on gasoline, about half the cost. This extends to airplanes as well. And airlines whose major cost is operational, not the cost of the airplane, it's the cost of flying the airplane, this looks really very attractive. So as Paul had already pointed out, there's, and, and of course Howard also, there is, uh, we're on the cusp of diversification for batteries. So we need many different kinds of batteries to satisfy all of these needs. And with that, I think, uh, I think I'll stop. Thank you, Howard. Well, thank you, George. And uh, Yat Ming? Thank you. Am I there? Maybe. I think you're paused. Yeah, no, not yet. Oh. Yeah, okay. Great. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, let me uh, first say that uh, you know, lithium-ion battery technology is an amazing thing. I've been you know, working on it for about 25 years. And uh, back in the early 2000s, 
the cost of lithium ion was about $1,500 per kilowatt hour of stored energy. Right? Today, for electric vehicles, it's under 200. And for the grid, it's a little over 200. Right? And so often, you know, we're asked, you know, can lithium ion batteries do it all? And uh, you know, what's the limit in lithium-ion batteries? So that's, that's in part the question I want to uh, uh, answer in, uh, today. Uh, and because professors can't give talks without slides, I'm going to show you a few slides. <laughs> okay. uh, if we think about the electricity generation system, right, this is a plot from EIA data. Right? And uh, in what we see is that over the last uh, here from 2001 to the, the present, you know, we see coal steadily declining, and, and that's going to continue. Uh, we see nuclear is relatively flat, and we hope that in the future there'll be an inflection upwards with a lot of new nuclear technologies that are being developed. Right? Uh, and pretty much hydro is flat, and we see that natural gas is increasing, and so is renewables. But natural gas is a factor of five higher than the renewables. And we look at these trends, and it, we come to the conclusion that you know, natural gas is the natural winner, unless we do something uh, to enable renewables to compete with natural gas. Right? And that something is storage. Right? So uh, in a uh, more or less completely decarbonized electricity system, we would like to use uh, intermittent renewables, wind and solar, and storage plays uh, the function of making those into dispatchable energy. Right? And so we ask the question, you know, what kind of storage is needed in this decarbonized world? Right? And uh, the point I want to make today is that you know, beyond lithium ion, uh, we're going to need storage that is longer in duration. And so the term long duration storage, you have, you've been probably hearing more and more about. And I want to try to put that in context. What does that really mean? Right? And so these three plots here uh, are from a recent uh, publication of ours. But what it is is in Iowa, uh, the, the top plot is the solar in Iowa, the next is wind, and it's the last 20 years. So with climate change, you know, the next 20 years won't look exactly like the last 20 years, but uh, you know, largely so. And so if we assume that the next 20 years looks like the last 20 years, what you see here, the vertical axis on all of these plots, uh, is what a battery would have to do to take that intermittent renewable and turn it into flat base load power. Right? And what you see is that uh, over those 20 years, the horizontal axis is 20 years, there are these periods where you get these deep dropouts. And that's where the battery needs to uh, you know, uh, provide electricity when we don't have solar and we don't have wind. The bottom, the green plot, is what happens if we use both and wind, solar and wind in some optimal mix. And the conclusion from that is that we need days of storage, not hours of storage. Right? So in a great solar resource today uh, with PV, you might only need four hours to shift from the peak generation to the early evening. Right? Uh, but as we go to other parts of the country to rely on renewables, we need several days of storage. So I'm going to round that off to 100 days, I mean 100 hours, right? four days. Right? So many of these uh, locations we think you need about uh, 100 hours of storage. And to beat natural gas, I'm going to use a very simple equation here. So natural gas costs us about $1,000 a kilowatt uh, to produce electric power. Right? Now, the thing about it is that you can just keep feeding it. Its duration is uh, infinite. Right? Batteries don't work that way. Uh, so for batteries, we have a certain operating duration. 
and then we have the cost of the battery in dollars per kilowatt hour. Right? And so you see that the product of 100 hours uh, and $10 a kilowatt hour gets us to parity with natural gas. Right? And so the problem with that is that grid lithium ion today is about $250 a kilowatt hour. Maybe it'll drop by a factor of two, maybe even a little more than that. Right? But it's hard to see it ever getting to $10 a kilowatt hour for the simple reason that the minerals that go into it cost more than that. Right? So uh, what we see as a result is that lithium ion is highly competitive natural gas in short duration applications today, the so-called emissionless peaker. Right? And we'll hear more about the deployment of lithium ion uh, and at significant scale today. Uh, but for this kind of, of, in order to use renewable electricity in a, in a, uh, a decarbonized system, we need something else. And this starts to tell us how low cost it has to be. Right? The next question is, well, how much storage does the world actually need? And we've spent a lot of time at the MIT Energy Initiative discussing this. And I'm, going, I'm going to give you a really you know, simple round number, 100 terawatt hours. Right? And I don't have time to unpack how we get there. Uh, but uh, to put that in perspective, some people even today think that electric vehicles will be roughly three times that. Right? And so we're going to be a little bit conservative and say that you know, we're not going to electrify all of transportation. Right? And uh, so uh, if we add what we think we might need for electricity and for vehicles conservatively 100 terawatt hours, which is a billion Tesla Model S's, just put that uh, number in perspective. Right? And so uh, that number might make some sense if you think of the, you know, the you know, world population of being a little under 8 billion people today. By 2040, 2050, it'll be close to 10 billion. Right? And so about you know, a billion Model S's, that's the amount of storage. And so can lithium ion do it all? Well, from a resource point of view, we don't think so. Right? Uh, to get to that, we would need about five times the currently known, uh, that's a key word known, you know, lithium resources uh, that we have. And the production uh, of lithium would have to scale by about a factor of 100 compared to what it, what it was last year. Right? Okay, so there's some limitations we see for uh, storage to make renewable generation fully dispatchable. And uh, what happened was that uh, within Jay Caesar, you know, George mentioned that it's about six and a half years uh, old now. We've, we're in its second cycle. In the first cycle, uh, we had a project, a multi-investigated project, asking the question, how low cost of grid storage chemistry can we develop? Right? And back then, we actually didn't have this understanding of what the cost target really should be and, or exactly what, uh, what uh, worldwide capacity of storage we might need. Right? But you know, we went ahead and looked at you know, the lowest cost chemicals possible. It turns out that anything in the periodic table that you can oxidize and reduce, you can pretty much make a battery out of. Right? But, in order to get to that $10 a kilowatt hour, we need chemicals that cost about $1 per kilowatt hour just for the chemicals. And that is a much more limited menu. Right? And so sulfur happens to be one of those. I'll say that sulfur is not the only one of those. Right? Uh, very low cost inorganics, there are other metals. You know, zinc is pretty low cost. But low cost inorganics that we oxidize and reduce in a battery system can be the basis for these ultra low cost batteries. Right? And so uh, these materials, these elements that are widely available, it actually takes more creativity to make a good battery out of them. 
Right? It's kind of like you know, cooking with fewer ingredients. You have to make, you have to be more creative to make it taste good, right? So, uh, working with these very uh, highly abundant, low-cost chemicals, it's actually a you know a greater challenge than when you have the entire periodic table to work from. Right? But what happened was that we had a project, and we demonstrated you know in the lab a very low-cost you know, air-breathing sulfur-based system. And what happened then was that from the J. Caesar uh, results there, a company was formed, and it's called Form Energy. You see the five founders here, uh, all uh, experienced battery entrepreneurs. Uh, on the far left is our uh, CEO, uh, Matteo Jaramillo, who spent uh, much of his professional life at Tesla and, and started the division uh, Tesla Energy. Right? And over the last several years where we are today is that first, uh, we've received additional DOE funding through the RPE Days program. Days is days of storage. Right? Their motto is beyond the hour and the day. Right? And it was this back and forth between what we were doing in Jay Caesar and, and, and DOE program managers at RPE that we came to understand that you know, this is the type of storage that needs to be developed. So the Days program now exists. And the engine at MIT is a um, is a uh, funding, is a, both an incubator and a funding organization that helped this company uh, get launched. And most recently, you know, we have now about 40 people in Somerville uh, working on developing this type of battery. Breakthrough Energy uh, invested in the company, and uh, most recently, you know, any of the Italian oil major. Right? And so uh, this is uh, a, a new direction in storage. And uh, another question people often ask is, you know, uh, how, how big are these batteries going to be? You know, do you need to buy the ranch next door to the wind farm? Right? And so just to put that in perspective, this is, there's actually some arithmetic in this image. It's not just a pretty picture. And so this type of battery that we're working on, the power density is one to two megawatts per acre. Right? And what that means is that it's about the same as a natural gas plant. Right? And so there's plenty of room under, under these windmills uh, uh, near these uh, solar farms in order to site this. And uh, one of the objectives here is to create batteries that, from the manufa manufacturing perspective, can essentially be assembled on site. One of the limitations of lithium-ion is that if you want to build a gigawatt hour of lithium-ion batteries, you have to build a gigafactory. Right? And we need to develop new battery technologies that can be manufactured anywhere you know, in the world, but especially here in the US uh, using resources that we have here without having to build giant factories. So let me uh, stop there. Thank you. Thank you. And now uh, Justin will, I guess, uh, talk about uh, current uh, yeah. efforts. And yeah, I, I'm not a professor, so I don't have any slides. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone uh, thanks you. <laughs> And um, I'll, I'll try to be a voice not only from the utility perspective, but from the market perspective, you know, and, and try to field those questions as well as best I can. Um, as you mentioned, I work at Baltimore Gas and Electric. Uh, we have about uh, 1.3 million electric customers, close to about 700,000 gas customers. We're part of the Exelon utility family, so Pepco, Delmarva, um, ComEd, so Commonwealth Edison in, in Illinois, as well as Pico are part of that. And then we have an affiliate with Constellation Energy and Exelon Generation. Uh, so we're part of a broader uh, energy company that has a big footprint in PJM, Mid-Atlantic, and Northeast uh, and Midwest. Um, and so in terms of, you know, I want to echo the comments that Paul said before this, which is when you talk about storage, I remember when I, before I really launched into this, this area, 
the articles would always focus on sort of a national perspective. Like here's a new paradigm that we can scale across the country. And when you get closer, the application, the business model, the, fundings, the, the funding flows are very regional, very specific to states, very specific to whatever regional uh, organization like PJM or in Texas ERCOT. It's very specific to uh, a utility. And so that's something I want to echo and, and something I'll try to say as well. So for instance, Baltimore Gas and Electric does not own generation. We're part of a deregulated state. It's a, it's a pro-competition state. So when we're talking about storage, uh, it's always an interesting question because storage has been sort of in between on the regulatory front. Uh, is it generation? Can it act as distribution or transmission? A lot of the regulations don't even, you know, the, these, these kind of technologies weren't really contemplated. And that's why it's, it's such a tricky situation regulatorily that uh, utilities like, like BG&E are, are in, you know, within. Uh, you know, companies such as Florida Power and Light, Duke Energy, they do own the storage. And so it's a different kind of world. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Maryland right now. So in Maryland, uh, we have a pilot that was just recently passed through legislation. Uh, very small in scope, so when we were hearing about gigawatts of storage, this pilot was just focused on 10 megawatts. So very small, I think that's by design to, to prove out some things without too much ratepayer impact. The thing that's interesting about this pilot is it, it, it forces the utilities, and we welcome this, to think more about how on the distribution side. So Baltimore Gas and Electric, we are a poles and wires company. So uh, a lot of what we focus on is that distribution piece, the, the wires that you see in your neighborhoods. And how can storage play a role in grid reliability and operation at that scale? And then how can we utilize this for something beyond that? So you get the stacking of different um, uh, of services there to kind of bring down the price point and make things more, uh, you know, better price point for our customers and for uh, what we put in our revenue requirements and filings. So the, you know, getting back to the pilot, each of the utilities in Maryland, so that includes Delmarva, Pepco, Baltimore Gas and Electric, and Potomac Edison, need to submit two projects uh, to the commission uh, in 2020, that one of which would be owned by the utility and providing distribution grid uh, services, as well as some other service, maybe potentially PJM wholesale service. That's one of the projects. The second project would not be owned by the utility, but would we'll still be providing distribution, grid reliability services, and then presumably some, some work either behind the meter or front of the meter. Um, so right now we're in the middle of procurement. We can't say too much, but we have a filing coming up in April. Um, we're very excited about um, the programs uh, that we're, we're going to be putting forward. Um, you know, BGE also has an existing uh, battery storage uh, project. Uh, it was funded as part of our, our dist uh, traditional distribution grid investments. Uh, it's one megawatt, one megawatt hour, and essentially provides capacity in one of our areas of our grid that's constrained during the summer months. And so it discharges during the times where we need it to make sure that we, we stay within the ratings of, of, our, uh, of our wires. So that was our first step into this, and now we're, we're launching uh, more headlong into this area where storage, uh, you may have heard the term non-wires alternatives, where essentially we're looking at not just wires as a way of doing what the utilities do, but looking at other technologies and trying to find ways that uh, makes sense from the perspective of uh, the customers, the you know, the ratepayers, and the utility. Um, I'll just take a moment also to talk a little bit. I already spoke about the regionality of it, but even to be more specific. So, uh, if you're in Maryland or if you're in the jurisdiction around, you know, PJM, so it's m roughly Mid-Atlantic and some Midwestern components. Battery storage is, is primarily doing a lot of work in frequency regulation, so keeping that frequency of the electricity. Going, it's more of a short hit, you know, charge, discharge, discharge. If 
you're talking about in states like the South, the West, you'll see battery storage doing more capacity work. So that's where it's more peak shaving, it's peaker plants, and that's just you know the different regulatory context. If you're looking at the Northeast, so it's uh, New York and, and uh, doing an ISO, very often it's used to shave the, the peak load of the whole service area to help reduce um, how much money they have to put in the pot for capacity funding. So a lot of this is a lot of technical stuff, but I always want to stress this because it is very, for someone, if people are just looking at this as a broad sector, you really have to look at the applications, uh, you know, area, regional, utility by utility, because the chemistries, the size, will be instructed by what that service is. And not to take too much time, but also to say storage, one of the reasons why I'm excited about it is that it, it doesn't fit into these, these traditional categories that we have talked about. It's not necessarily generation. Uh, it's like a Swiss Army knife of, of, uh, uh, of the electricity sector and the grid. You know, I mean, one of the fundamental uh, challenges of the electricity sector is you have to instantaneously meet, generation has to meet load. And we obviously have storage that's out there right now and there's things, but for the most part, that's always a central challenge. Storage fundamentally turns it on its head. It can do a lot of things, but it actually does allow a mechanism to store. And I think that's, that's why it's, it's an exciting opportunity for utilities. It's something that, it's a challenge for us to think about what's our role in this world where these, these applications continue to expand. What's the role of the residential customer versus the role of the, the wholesale generator? Because customers are also looking at storage. The, I, I mentioned we were talking earlier, uh, vehicle to grid. So having not only electric uh, car in your, in your garage that you can manage when it charges, but actually allowing it to export. That's, not, that's something that's just now starting to be scratched on the surface, but I think we'll hear more and more about it in the years to come. So with that, I'll, I'll yield. Well, thank you all, all three, really great. Now let's like begin our discussion and then we'll turn to the sort of the panel, uh, the outside questions. But so for, for, for both, I guess, George and Yet, so, you know, what are the characteristics of make an ecosystem conducive to innovation and storage and other energy technologies. I mean, it clearly, uh, uh, I guess it takes a village in some way. And could, could you guys describe the village? Sure. And um, if I can start here, yeah, I'm on. Uh, it certainly is an ecosystem. And uh, this is something that we realized in spades in maybe the last five years. It's the supply chain, it's the battery technology, and it's the application that all have to develop at one time. And previously, we didn't have this feature, we didn't recognize this feature. So one thing we've noticed, and actually what Yet was talking about is a perfect example, the batteries that succeed in the marketplace are the ones for which there is a, a pressing, maybe urgent application and long duration storage to back up wind and solar on consecutive cloudy and, uh, uh, and calm days is a great example. Can't do it with a four hour battery, which is basically what lithium ion does. So there has to be a market pull. And those are the things that are really going to succeed. On the other hand, coming in from the supply chain, there have to be adequate supplies. And actually, again, yet address this point, uh, inexpensive, abundant, you know, uh, raw material supply chain. Uh, and when you have all of those things working together, then you have a winning combination. So I think the question is, we, we have lithium ion now today, it's kind of dominant, right? Because it's been around for uh, nearly 30 years and it's done so much, but it won't be able to do everything. And the question now is to design with much more, let's say, strategy 
involved, what batteries are the most important to bring out in the future. And you can think of, uh, I mentioned electric flight, uh, getting a lot of attention now, but obviously you need a much bigger battery if you're going to fly regionally, say 600 miles. That's a distance between uh, Chicago and Washington, for example. Uh, that's a very tempting market, but you need a battery that's much bigger than you have for your electric vehicle. So maybe 800 watt hours per kilogram is sort of the target that people have for that. That's beyond what lithium ion can do. So these other opportunities we need to look at holistically to really make them come true. And yet I'm sure you have some comments. Sure. Oh, first, I agree with uh, everything you said, George. Let me uh, talk about a different aspect of the ecosystem, perhaps. So uh, Paul Barr early mentioned, uh, how do we get uh, all of this, uh, all these inventions, all this IP out of uh, the national labs and, you know, of course, out of the universities as well in, into commercialization? And so uh, currently, uh, I'm sure everybody realizes the East Coast and West Coast have a, a structural advantage here. Uh, because of the ec ecosystems, but the you know what are the elements of that ecosystem? It's you know we of course have the uh, have the students and uh, and postdocs who want to go and work in these tough technology areas. And one of the amazing things around MIT right now is that everybody at MIT wants to find a way to work on climate. You know the molecular biologists are asking, what can I do about climate? You know and AI of course is is starting to be applied. Uh, so. Uh, Typically, we have a lot of technical talent, and uh, we almost have too much <laughs> of it. Uh, but uh, I think one of the things, other things you need in this ecosystem is you need a, um, a community outside of the university. And I'll give you an example. There's an organization called Greentown Labs in Somerville, Massachusetts. They build themselves as uh, the largest clean tech incubator in the world, and, it, and it's actually true. Uh, they have over 100 companies using their space. Right? It ranges from a company with you know, 40 employees down to a couple of people using two desks. Right? Uh, but what they have is an ecosystem. And this is you know, now after you graduate right? and when you're trying to commercialize something. Uh, this is a community where you can share resources and a lot of it is just physical. A lot of things we do need simple things like a wet lab. And you would not believe how hard it is to find wet lab space in Cambridge, Massachusetts, outside of university. Right? Uh, and so these are the kinds of uh, things that, uh, that you need. You need a business school. Right? You need folks, uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, we are overloaded in technical talent. I think we're under-resourced in, in entrepreneurial uh, talent, for folks from business schools. Right? And so these are things that I think, in, certainly in the Boston area, and all, uh, equally on the West Coast that you have. And then the, there are other parts of the country where one or more of these elements are currently lacking. I think one of the things we really have to do is to figure out how to build the rest of those ecosystems. I've, I think I skipped the, uh, the financial community, uh, but uh, I think we can get them to travel right? <laughs> more than the rest of us. Right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So. I guess let me, let me ask Justin something. Oh, sorry. Let me ask Justin something. And that, uh, so another thing you can do on uh, distribution systems involves demand management and demand flexibility. And like, how does, yeah. this is a case where storage can serve, I mean, in the car, electric car, you gotta have a battery, I think, yeah. probably, of some kind. But on electric systems, storage is one thing that can achieve certain 
Absolutely. services, and there are other things that can achieve those services. Yeah. So how do you, from the electric system perspective, therefore it's very important in some sense to pursue the yeah. cost reduction that I think has been talked about, but how do these things, how does BG&E look at the, the role of different approaches to dealing with the, with the wires challenges? Right, yeah, so um, in terms of demand response, um, and BGE has uh, a number of programs. I think we're one of the national leaders in this, a peak rewards program as well as energy savings days. So uh, if you sign up for a thermostat, you would, you know, certain days of the year when it's particularly hot, you'll, you'll have it cycle down and you get paid for it. And then in addition, on days that are called energy savings days, if you reduce your uh, energy consumption versus a baseline, you also get paid for it. A pretty simple program. So if I'm part of that, you know, I, I'm enrolled in that system, and so if I see an energy savings day coming around, and it's gonna be like 103 degrees, I set my thermostat to 68, and then when the day starts, I, you know, I let it cycle, and I'm, you know, cool throughout the day. So we're, we're already, that's already part of our energy efficiency and empower programs. Uh, we, you know, energy efficiency has been a big push within Maryland. So that's sort of within the energy efficiency and demand response. So where does storage fit in all this? Um, storage is sort of the next frontier that we're, we're going to start seeing with this. Um, you know, there isn't, a, behind the meter storage is not a huge piece in terms of Maryland. It's starting to grow, and, and Maryland Energy Administration and Commission. I think this pilot was meant to kind of jumpstart a lot of that thinking as well. Um, you know, one of the things, so going back to this pilot that was, um, was introduced, one of the options is called a virtual power plant, a VPP. Essentially would be an aggregation of behind the meter um, uh, storage facilities and treat them all as like a singular plant and together jointly be able to have them discharged during times we need it. And there's, sometimes there's reasons we need it from PJM, so sometimes the broader wholesale market says, hey, we just, we need some help, you know, we want, to, want you to come in as a capacity resource. And there's times also at the distribution level where a specific feeder has an issue. That may be driven by weather, it may also be driven by a tree falling on a 34 kV line. Um, and so part of this pilot will, it does conceive, and some, with one of the options we're evaluating, would be us to be able to tie into a behind the meter storage facility and when the, the day that we need it, so we'll have a call option to say, um, you know, maybe 10 times out of the year, five times out of the year, we need, to, we need to be able to tell it to discharge when we need it so that, you know, if we do have that over voltage situation on one of our lines, this can discharge and, and take, the, take the pressure off. That's something, it's still pilot phase. There's a few programs out there similar to it, but on the distribution side, it's still um, very nascent. Uh, there'll be a lot of learning. It's kind of, and different, you know, the difference here is that a lot of that innovation is really on communication software and regulatory. Um, so the, 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 you know, the storage technologies we're talking about are something you can buy off the shelf, maybe Powerwall, Sonnen, LG Chem, um, primarily lithium ion, there are some others out there. It's really a case of how do we integrate that into our our operation system, how do we, how do we uh, create something, some way for us to be recognized for that through the commission, you know, and, and how does this all, all these different pieces work together and is this part of a broader, you know, distributed energy resource, um, you know, management system that we need to implement. And these are all things we're thinking about. So I think from our perspective, you know, kind of taking a long-winded approach, things are going to become a lot more squishy. The DR piece is going to become broader and broader. It'll include vehicles, it'll include storage. And I think as we, you know, Maryland is now starting to ramp up. We had a, a, a renewable portfolio standard that passed this past year, you know, ramping up to 50% uh, renewables by 2030. And, you know, we just don't, the world, 
that's the trajectory we're on. Who knows if it gets stronger? And the, the question of how we integrate all these, all these DERs is going to be ultimately more complex, and we need to be able to account for it. And so that's, this is our way, making that entryway into it. Great. So, so this is for uh, George and Yat. So, you know, one of the things in thinking about electric vehicles and, and batteries is kind of, for vehicles, the amount of batteries you need is very proportional in some sense to the number of vehicles you have. Whereas if we're looking at the role of storage and long duration storage in particular with respect to electricity systems, we already know from California and Iowa, you know, you can greatly increase the amount of wind and solar energy and not necessarily have to have a lot of batteries. But then it's, it's sort of nonlinear in the sense when you go to systems that have, you know, almost exclusively reliant on, if, if you double from 40% wind and solar to 80% or, or go up to 90% or 95%, then you need tremendous amounts. So this goes back to George's observation about uh, you know, where you have market pull versus supply push. And the question is, you know, the development of storage technologies can take a very long time. And in the case of, of some cases like this, where even with a lot of wind and solar, you may not certainly have some, a lot of demand for batteries and electric systems, but these long duration applications may only come, you know, suddenly and a lot. So the question is, how do you deal with a situation like that? So there was a great comment, a great question, and a couple of comments on that. Uh, yeah, it's, so at the present moment, we have a relatively modest renewable penetration in the grid. It's growing, but it's modest. And the storage needs, uh, as Paul pointed out, we're recognizing them and we're deploying bigger and bigger systems, as big as 400 megawatt hours in Florida, as he said, uh, to handle that. But when you start to look at projections, and they're, in the last two years they've really come out with good economic models, what do you need if you're going to have 80% penetration of wind and solar, or 90% or even 100%? Uh, and it turns out the requirements are huge if you're going to rely only on storage. So you might have to have a price for storage which is 20 or $30 a kilowatt hour as opposed to something like 150 or 200 nowadays. And the question is, how would you ever get that? Well, the battery that Yet was talking about might be one example. Uh, and you have to deploy a lot of it. If you look at maybe having something else in the system besides just battery storage, and that could be hydrogen storage or there some other gravity storage, there are other options out there, and say that uh, you only have to have 80% uh, 80, uh, 80 uh, the effectiveness of 80% uh, renewable penetration, suddenly the price can go up and it's a lot easier to achieve. So I think one of the things, and Paul did mention this, all of the above. You don't want to look only at storage, at battery storage. You want to look at all kinds of storage. And you want to look at how that system, which approaches, let's say, or achieves 100% decarbonization by 2050, uh, how would that work? And we're testing a few things out now. Uh, and the battery storage that we have on the grid is a great example. But there are other things that we should do. Demand management, which Justin was mentioning, uh, could play a big role. That has huge opportunities. You've got to put all these things together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so this is a great point that the, uh, when the hockey stick uh, yeah. occurs is, is unclear. Right? 
And so how do you plan around that? And there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot of risk there. Right? So uh, there are a couple of different ways uh, you can look at it. So you know, for instance, my colleagues who do the data analytics, they can show you, you know, case by case where someone today might want a four, day, a four, four days of storage. So one example, in the upper Midwest, there's a, 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 a co-op. Uh, and you know, their current problem is not one you would uh, uh, normally think of, which is the polar vortex. Well, Vortex comes through quite reliably right? every uh, uh, couple of years at least. And what happens is that when it gets too cold, the windmills uh, uh, have to be curtailed. The lubrication right? uh, no longer works. Just like you know, batteries have operating temperature range, lubricants have an operating temperature range. It gets too cold, uh, the windmills, you, you can't spin them. Right? And so those kind of outages, and then when that happens, they turn on all the gas peakers and still don't have enough electricity. And so there's, you know, there's an example. So there's, there's a, there are a lot of these case studies where you say, well, here's an example, here's an example. But I think from a, uh, a different way to answer that question, you know, why would you, not knowing when and how much uh, long duration storage uh, might occur, you know, why would you uh, invest in it now? Why would someone buy that now? Right? And, if you look at from the risk point of view, uh, look at the converse risk. If you were to build today a gas plant uh, with a 30-year asset life, and the risk is that a decade from now, you'll be forced to shut it down. Right? It's a very different kind of a risk, but actually, it's a very, you know, that's a very real risk. And I'd bet on that risk <laughs> occurring. Right? Uh, or you can bet on the risk of trying out some new storage technology. And so, you know, when, so uh, when we have these conversations uh, with folks who are in that decision-making role of, you know, do I actually deploy more, more gas or do I start to think about, you know, placing a bet on renewables plus storage, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're finding people that think that the second is the easier risk to, uh, to swallow. Right. So. Great. Mm -hmm. So I guess this is for, interestingly enough, for, for Justin in the end. So, uh, uh, you know, in, in Justin's previous life or an earlier phase of his current life, more accurately, uh, you know, he worked, I guess, with the military, as I, as I mentioned. And sometimes we look to the military as a sort of a, because of its use cases and because, you know, we may think of a gallon of diesel fuel costing $3.50, but to get it to some frontline position may be more like $350 a gallon. Yeah. So the, the, I guess the question is, uh, sometimes the military is looked at as potential market for, you know, early, early use cases for some technologies. Yeah. And given your past experience and, and current experience, you know, is that something in, on the government side and on the researcher side also, it's really for everybody, that, you know, what are the kind of benefits and pitfalls in that kind of area? I don't, again, anyone sure. can take Is it related to storage? Or yeah, related to storage, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, so it's, you know, that was a few years ago, so I, and I'm sure there might be some people in the room that are more up to date than I am, so I'll be a little bit general. But, um, you know, the, the focus now is on resilience, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, there's still, you know, a lot of opportunities for, for government facilities, not just DOD, but otherwise to, to look at what happens, you know, on these uh, long tail risk events, you know wide-scale outage, hurricane, cyber attack, you know, EMP was mentioned. You know, these are all things that, you know, should be thought about because that's when those times occur, uh, people look to the military, look to government to be 
the organization to to stand up. And so, if the if anything that hurts that ability to stand up is going to be an issue, and that's that's why it's a priority there. You know, I think in terms of storage, storage is always tricky because, you know, compared to uh, thermal sources of generation, you know, so if you're talking about like natural gas on site, sometimes it's difficult to make a pencil. Um, you know, solar plus storage. Um, can work in a lot of instances, but getting that, you know, you have to kind of plan for all those contingencies. What happens if the, um, if this happens in the middle of winter and there's snow on the, on the solar panels? You know, having that ability to ramp up is still something that's very often included in, in microgrid plans. So storage I see is sort of a, uh, not the, you know, it's a Swiss Army knife, but it doesn't, isn't necessarily the whole, whole set. You know, I think storage can be a great uh, tool there, especially if you can tap into these other resources. So I mentioned, you know, wholesale services. You know, in California, very often you can be access resource adequacy payments. There's ways, obviously there's grants and, and things like that. If you can tap into those, then storage does make a lot of sense and it can be so flexible. It can provide power quality, frequency regulation, like it can be the, the piece that pulls a whole micro together. But it can be, I think, we're, at least when I was there, and you know, I don't want to speak for where, where it is now, but sometimes it is difficult to have storage be the centerpiece and the prime mover. Very often you need sort of a, a rampable generation to supplement. Any other comments on that? I mean, are, is, are the, is one of the people you're working with the defense establishment at all? Well, a tiny comment, great comments, uh, Justin. Yeah, I, I think uh, the military, they have a goal, a quite an impressive goal, that some of their bases should be able to go off the grid for several months at a time just because you can imagine a need for that in the worst case scenarios. Uh, and that's a good test case. Can you really do this? Uh, it's a little more serious than backing up wind and solar for a few days of, of calm or overcast days. But it's a uh, proof of principle. It demonstrates a way forward. And that is critically important. And I might comment also that we've, uh, Paul mentioned policy. I thought he said something very, <laughs> very uh, incisive. He said it doesn't cost much to implement policy. And in fact, policy can have a huge impact on what we try. So in the civilian grid, we'd like to try a few things and see what works and what doesn't. And we need some policy to encourage that. And we need some regulators who are willing to take a chance to do that. These are all examples, along with the military, of let's try some stuff out and see what works. Yeah. All right, so we need institutional innovation as well as technical innovation, Definitely. so to speak. I mean, that, that seems like an important point. So yet, you have significant past and current experience as a co-founder of several companies seeking to commercially develop storage technologies out of, out of research. So what are the, some key lessons from your past and present experience? Uh, uh, how have government policies and programs influenced them? What type of changes might make government programs and policies more effective in supporting commercialization right. efforts? Well, each time you do it, you learn something new. <laughs> so uh, so uh, I think, uh, if I think back to, for example, A123 Systems uh, as a battery company that was uh, trying to put uh, PHEV batteries in the first generation of uh, cars like the Chevy uh, Volt. Uh, so uh, that, that was an interesting uh, period because it was the, Re the Recovery Act made a lot of funds available for battery manufacturing, but the market wasn't there. Right? And that was really the, the problem. We you know, built capacity in Michigan that ended up being uh, 10 times the annual capacity of all the batteries we ever sold to Fisker. 
Right? So <laughs> there's a factor of 10 overcapacitized for the market at the time. So you learn not to make that mistake again. Uh, but one of it is, you know, one of so one thing we uh, you know learned from that was that uh, you know this. Uh, 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 building factories uh, and how and uh, ma the manufacturing uh, of lithium-ion batteries is this uh, is a uh, is a, a very difficult uh, proposition from the point of view of the scale you have to reach to get the cost you have to reach and so what that actually led to was a, a, a new technology which we also did on the DOE uh, uh, basic research funding which is what uh, this company that. Uh, um, I mentioned earlier, 24M Technologies does, which is how to make lithium-ion batteries without requiring a gigafactory. Right? And so that uh, technology is now coming uh, along uh, quite nicely. A number of industrial partners are building the first plants to commercialize that. Right? And so uh, from, from that, you know, uh, so how do you uh, manufacture without having to make these giant capital investments in manufacturing plants? And form energy, you know, we'd like to not have to build any plants at all. <laughs> Just go to the site, build the battery right there, right? Have the supply chain that delivers everything, uh, have uh, you know, uh, everything that can be, that needs to be made, made by uh, contract manufacturers who make a whole bunch of other mechanical devices. And so it's a battery that looks more like a plant. And those who, EPCs that know how to build chemical plants, th those are the folks that we engage to do that. So I would say that's one kind of, trend is, you know, how do you scale but without having to build manufacturing plants? How do you develop technologies that can do that? Yeah. So, so mega plants are the answer, or, or nano plants even are the mm -hmm. answer to giga deployment. That's, right. <laughs> That's an interesting question. The battery is the plant, is the answer. There you go. Okay, well, we did promise uh, that we would have uh, audience uh, some questions, and we're getting toward the end, so I better turn to that. Uh, I want to take maybe two or three at a time maybe two or three, one time. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. And identify yourself, please. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm Emily Hirsch. I'm the managing partner of DCDB Group. Uh, my question is to the whole panel, uh, but especially doctors, Krabchi and Chang. Um, when you look at sort of the raw material supply chain and the need for the mineral foundations to essentially back up the technology that's being developed in your labs, where do you see the like the bottlenecks, and how can the communication improve so that the like essentially that channel from the mine to being a battery input, especially in things like magnesium um, or even lithium, where where currently you have one product to another? How do you get that specialization that you need to build stuff into the supply chain? And then, kind of uh, on the other side, but equally important, when you look at the financial community that currently allocates its funds to things like WeWork or or things businesses where they don't actually have to hold any assets and where there's sort of a tech unicorn hunt. How do you look to communicate with that side and shift the investment mindset to something that doesn't scare so easily at um, owning something real? Okay, another one, please. Kristen Movich, Energy Information Administration. Uh, probably mostly to Dr. Chang, but never can answer. The way I understand the challenge is not to build a 100-hour battery, because if you can build a four-hour battery, you just build 25 of them and you have a 100-hour battery. The problem is that at the margin, the utilization of that battery might only be 100 hours a year, and it becomes hard to, to recover the cost on a 1% capacity factor asset, or even you know, once every couple of years, you need that to ride through that 100-hour time period. Am I understanding that correctly? Okay. Thank you. 
Hi, uh, Sarah Kasten from CAPSARC. Um, the discussion has been framed really domestically on the role of um, battery storage, but could we get some feedback on whether there's an interagency process to make sure that storage is becoming a game changer for um, energy access in least developed countries? Okay, one more, and then I think we'll take them and then we'll... Hi, I'm uh, Ellen Hughes-Cromwick at Third Way and former chief economist at Ford Motor Company, Dr. Crabtree. I was hoping you could comment a little bit on where the battery cost structure is likely to go. As you look out to 2025, is that the point at which we're going to get cost parity on electric vehicles versus ICEs? Okay. All right. Well, those are good questions. So let me review them. Uh, I think there's a, one question about the long-term supply chain for materials and, and sorry, the long-term supply chain for materials and, and kind of uh, challenges there. And the question is, how do you shift the also how do you shift the attention of uh, market entrepreneurs from sort of uh, I guess things like WeWork or to to more you know. I'll call them harder, uh, you know, scaling manufacturing type things. Uh, there was a question about the low capacity factor of, of long duration uh, storage, which I think relates to the question of, you know, the, the cost that you would have to have for this thing. And the capital cost ends up being really important as well uh, for these, you know, intermittent or infrequently used in low cycling applications. Uh, so that comes up. There's a was a question about the world uh, dimension of this. I, I believe actually at your, when you mentioned uh, something 10 to 100 terawatt hours, that was a world scale thing, but it's a fair question. And so we should address that. And then there was finally a question more directly focused on this next decade, where we probably are gonna, for better or for worse, have you know kind of batteries that we have now for the most, I mean, certainly improvements. But the question is, what kind of costs we'll be looking at? Are we going to have, uh, you know, 100 or it's going to be less than 100? And I guess different people have different views on that, but certainly the views of the experts here would be uh, welcome. So uh, I guess all can take all, but uh, you yeah, seem like <laughs> a very good crowd, so I'll let you sort that among yourselves. I'll speak to the first question, the second component, which is how do you make this something that fits more into this unicorn, we work world? And kind of turn a little bit on its head. So storage, one of the really cool things about it, just like in solar, is that's modular. It can be, it's not like natural gas or other sources of generation, nuclear, where it needs to be centralized for economies of scale. That's the real revolution, is that it can be put into people's homes. It can be put into commercial buildings. It can be anywhere it needs to be where, it's, where it makes sense for the customer. And so I think when we think about storage, one of the key game changers is that, you know, especially as the, ca the costs come down, it does allow for this flexibility down the road that utilities like, like BG&E are just now starting to scratch the surface. You know, the economics are starting to come into play. And so, you know, maybe it's not quite what you're asking, but the flexibility that storage provides will sort of enable a lot of these, these new technologies to be dispersed and to be integrated into even like, you know, small business planning. Um, and so I think that's something that we are engaged on and I think that's something that storage has a direct impact on. Maybe I can uh, add to that in terms of you know, who's investing. Since you mentioned WeWorks, I wanted to say that, you know, SoftBank <laughs> has invested a lot in uh, not only solar, but also in storage. 
Right? And so uh, the same investors that uh, see uh, you know, opportunities in these other uh, tech unicorns. Uh, but uh, it, it is true that uh, more so the investment community that we see right now are, uh, are uh, mission-oriented uh, funds like uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, you know, Prelude Ventures, uh, and uh, uh, you know, any uh, is an oil and gas major, but uh, they, you know, they really take seriously this uh, the energy revolution. So uh, it, you and we and you won't get investment from uh, the uh, venture capitalists who have typically looked for those you know, uh, IT software kinds of uh, investments, but. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> you know, there actually seems to be a pretty robust uh, investment uh, pipeline uh, for new energy, uh, for new storage technologies. So comment on that, actually, these two previous comments. How do you get the investment community to look a little more broadly and serve, let's say, uh, national needs rather than their own profit-motivated needs? Uh, and I think uh, there's a huge role of policy there. California has really taken a lead here. They have understood that in order to make, achieve their climate goals and decarbonization goals, you need investment in technology. And they have provided policies that ensure that there will be a, a technology need and an opportunity for 10 or 20 years, not just one or two years, in some of the policies that they have passed. And I think this is another example of how the whole ecosystem works together. It's, it's investment, it's policy, which is either at state or government levels often, uh, that encourages the investment that's needed to get a certain outcome. Uh, we've, we're talking a lot about solar panels and how much they've fallen in price. It wasn't clear 10 years ago that the price was going to fall like that. And it has to do with learning curve and with uh, you know, improving manufacturing and investments, investors realizing that there is a long-term market and this is valuable for them to do. So I think that example, we could apply it to storage. We could apply it to some of the other decarbonization solutions that we're looking for uh, to really make that happen. So there, there are plenty of opportunities there. It does take some innovation in the policy area. Okay. Does anyone want to... Yeah, I want to pick up on the other questions, the, the near-term sure. cost trends or the... We don't have a lot of time, and so... Maybe just to follow on, as George said, yeah. everybody wants to know where lithium-ion costs are going to be, right? So, uh, so with lithium-ion technology, I think a useful way to think about it is that there is absolutely a learning curve on the manufacturing side. Right? And so that you can you know, apply a learning curve to. Minerals don't learn very well. <laughs> and so there's a mineral cost floor, and which is actually rising uh, recently. Right? Uh, so uh, as long as so uh, I tend to think of it as a this two-stage process. You have a floor set by the minerals cost, and you have a learning curve in terms of manufacturing. Where that ends up, well, the uh, you know the this uh, 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 the supply the first question about supply chain. You know, right now there's a lot of concern over cobalt. So the chemist answer to all this is, oh, okay, we'll find a way not to use not to use cobalt, right? and that's actually happening. Right? Unfortunately, in the near term, we're using more nickel. <laughs> so nickel has an yeah. unexpected consequence on the price of nickel, right? Great. Uh, but there are, there are other options, and you can, we, you can get these dislocations. For example, you know, uh, in J. Caesar, there's magnesium, right? You don't like uh, lithium, maybe magnesium, maybe sodium. Uh, and so there are, you know, there are always, uh, we have not run out of chemistry options. 
We may not succeed at all of them. Okay. But uh, in the, looking at your supply chains in the long term, you know, you, you, you have to anticipate technology change. Well, just like we haven't run out of chemistry options, I'm sure we haven't run out of questions, but we have run out of time. So please join me in uh, thanking our panel for a really great discussion. Thank you. Thank you.